I, I like wine. Uh, I buy... <laughs> Perhaps that's not the best thing to say during Lent, but... I buy a dozen bottles at a time from Naked Wines. When it comes, I'm happy. I, I restock the section of our storage space, which contains the wine, and I always, always feel good when we have many bottles. And I'm generally happy drinking my wine alone. My wife, Tammy, likes people. The more people in her life, the better. She also likes having people over and going to people's houses. And you know what that means. Every time we have someone over or go to someone's house for dinner, she says, Rob, open a bottle or bring a bottle. I get the bottle I like least. <laughs> Some things are meant to be shared, not hoarded. Wine especially, I think. It is a drink of conviviality, of celebration, of relationship. And of course, every Sunday we drink it together. It is a drink of, a, of communion, of life, of our life together. And the brief story I just told you about myself is a bit of a parable in that it is a simple story that il il illustrates a profound truth. We don't like to share particularly those things that give us a sense of well-being and security, even if that sense of well-being and security is false. The only security is Jesus Christ. But what strikes me about today's parable is that the tenants of the vineyard do not want to share the fruit of the vineyard, and they don't even own the vineyard in the first place. And while this parable is complex and it's layered and it's open to varying inter interpretations, uh, of which I read many this past week, I, I could be sure that this wanting to have what did not belong to them is certainly true of this story. As I studied this parable, this was my entree of understanding into, into its layers of meaning. And what follows invariably from wanting what is not yours is doing whatever you have to do to get it. It invariably leads to violence of one kind or another. In our parable, the tenants start with not wanting to give some of the fruit of the vineyard and end with, with, with wanting the entire vineyard. And with each scene in the story, the violence gets worse. It escalates. Violence begets violence. The first servant the owner sends is beaten. The second is beaten and shamed. The third is wounded and cast out. And when the owner sends his beloved son, the tenants reason among themselves, hey, listen, if we take this heir out, the inheritance will be ours. And they kill the owner's son. So if we briefly step out of this parable this morning to try to understand why Jesus told this story, um, it is very important to three of the gospel writers, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the setting of the parable is the account of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple, which was equivalent to a complete takeover of the entire temple complex. And that's a big temple complex. I think I read about 35 acres. And it's a disruption of the, that day's sacrifice. So what does this mean? Of course, it's a direct challenge to the temple leaders who demand to know by what authority Jesus did these things. For you see, Jesus had undercut their authority. So the natural question is, by what authority do you undercut our authority? And they were asking of Jesus, who are you? 
And Jesus doesn't answer their questions directly. Instead, he tells them a story. When you want to get people to listen, you tell them a story. And the listeners of this story were riveted. We know that because when Jesus says, says at the end, towards the end of the story, the vineyard owner will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others, his listeners who have been hanging on his every word gasp and say, God forbid, heaven forbid. Now that's interesting. You, you think they might say something like, well, that's understandable. After three consecutive beatings of servants, those tenants and the killing of the son, those tenants had it coming to them, but they don't say that. By this point in the story, Jesus' listeners would know that the owner in the story stood for God, the tenants for Israel, and the owner's servant for the prophets. That Israel's inheritance could not only be extended to Gentiles, to non-Israelites, but withdrawn from Israel is absolutely abhorrent to Jesus' audience. Those who have been granted God's favor tend to become entitled with that granting and often think that no offense on their part could cause God to withdraw it. And God does, but he never stops loving Israel. And this parable has got to be understood in the context of that love, my beloved son. This parable is violent. It's hard to listen to and receive, and it's meant as a cautionary tale. The farmers have rejected the messengers. Jesus is saying, this is what you've done to God's messengers. Don't do the same thing to God's son. The parable is not set in stone. It can change. We can change. Why did Jesus tell parables? Because parables confront and challenge us as listeners to enter into the story, to respond, and to change the story, to change our hearts. And the parable is a fluid story. It's not set. This is not only my story, says Jesus. It's your story, too. It's our story together. We can change it. Parable is not history. It's allegory about history, a simple story about a profound truth that invites us to change our story. We are given co-agency with God to script our own stories. What a gift. We do not live by fate or destiny or by the way it's always been. History is not determinative. It is instructive of how we can do things better. I listened to an interview with the author of uh, author Yuval Noah Harari, it's a Jewish historian, uh, about the Ukraine. And he said, as a historian, I feel ashamed or responsible about what history is doing to people. In Israel, we suffer from too much history. We and the Russians and the Germans should liberate ourselves from the memories of the Second World War. And Yuval Harari, a Jew, says to the Germans, we know you're not Nazis. You don't need to keep proving it again and again. What we need from you now, Germany, is to stand up and be a leader in the midst of this new war. And it's happening. And of course, as a caveat here, this is a very optimistic view of humanity. And the facts on the ground and the conditions of our hearts belie this very optimistic view that humanity 
can get us out of the mess that we are in. The colic for this morning, Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be freed, fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ, O Lord. This is why God must do it and will do it for Israel and for all of us. The prophet Isaiah speaking for God tells us, remember not the former things. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Rivers in the desert, waters in the wilderness. Drink to my people who are mad with thirst and trying to drink from cisterns that are bone dry. Turning our stony hearts into hearts of flesh. That only God can do. And that will reorder our desires. So we want what God wants for us. And so we're willing to sacrifice and give of ourselves even as the beloved son did. And of course, in this parable of the tenants, Jesus wants to liberate the listeners from this history of killing the prophets. Listen, he says. And the vineyard in the story takes the initiative to do that liberation. Remarkably, after sending three servants who have been mistreated and rejected, the owner asks, what shall I do now? That is amazing. The owner, representing God the Father, the sovereign Lord of all creation, is wondering what to do. God is sovereign, yes, praise be to God, but he's not rigidly and statically so. God is not reactive, but he does react and respond based on what we do. And he invites us to be and do the same to him because that is the essence of a relationship. We change. What shall I do, asks God? That is the question of the story. And the parable continues as an answer to that question, which should give rise to another question from, from us as readers. Um, imagine you're telling this story to to your child at, bed, at bedtime, which I don't think you would pick, pick this particular story. <laughs> um, but if you did, as soon as you say that the owner sent his beloved son to the vineyard, what's your child going to say? But why? Why would he do that after he's already sent three people and, they've, and they have savaged them? That's the right question. That's the story's question. The leading question to the stories in the middle, why would the owner send his son? How foolish is this? Indeed, it's insane by the one definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And this is the question Jesus invites the religious leaders to ask. And this is the, the word that our children downstairs, when they're listening to stories, they invited to do together, to wonder. This is the wondering question. Why would you send your beloved son? And the listeners don't ask it. And because they don't ask it, they don't allow the answer to seep down and penetrate and soften their hardened hearts, which will, at the end of the parable, shatter against the cornerstone because their hearts are so hard. Why would you send your beloved son? Why would you be so stupid, so crazy? And the answer is crazy love, because I love you. How marvelous, how wonderful is our Savior's love for us. When the great theologian, poet, mystic Abraham Heschel suffered a, a man of God, I believe, Abraham Heschel suffered a near-fatal heart attack uh, from which he never recovered. I say that because he's a, he's a Jewish uh, 
um, writer, scholar, prophet. He, he spoke this in a whisper to a friend at his bedside. When I regained consciousness, my first feelings were not of despair or anger. I felt only gratitude to God for my life, for every moment I had lived. I was ready to depart. Take me, O Lord, I thought. I have seen so many miracles in my lifetime. And Heschel paused for a moment and then added, this is what I meant when I wrote in the preface of my book on Yiddish poems. I did not ask for success. I asked for wonder. And you gave it to me. You know what wonder leads to? It leads to gratitude. You know what gratitude always leads to? Generosity. To a giving of ourselves. And not a taking and a keeping. It's not a grab for power. It's a giving of love. And this leads us to the final question of this parable. What then should I do? The owner and father's question in the story, what should I do? Props our question to the father, why did you do that? And as we marvel in that answer, we ask the final question, what then should I do? I know what I should do. When you come over to our home, I'll give you the very best bottle of wine. <laughs> and there's a further delightful irony here for me. I will be a priest soon. As you know, at this point, my primary emotion is doubt accompanied by the question, what have I done? And that doubt, however, releases me into the reassurance that this is what God has done. And what he wants to do in me is what he will do through me. A priest is simply a vessel into which God's wine, the precious blood of Christ, is poured in and poured out into the life of others. And we are all a kingdom of priests doing that for one another. We are vessels. Vessels of grace, vessels of goodness, vessels of love, vessels of gratitude. Because Jesus' spilled blood is our lifeblood. Amen.